Hello there and welcome to part three of our trip through Paul's letter to the Romans and we're going to be looking today at one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the whole letter. We're looking at 124 to 32 but I'm not going to read that instead. Our reading today comes from the book of Jean Willis and it's called The Tale of Georgie Grubb. This is the tale of Georgie Grubb who would not give himself a scrub no matter how his mother tried when she said soap he'd run and hide. When she said bath, he'd scream and shout and throw his arms and legs about. He'd whine and wail and scream and shriek and wriggle and squiggle and squirm and squeak. But then one day it got so bad he drove his poor old mother mad. She threw the towel in and gave up and let him be a mucky pup. On Monday, Georgie left the place with strawberry jam around his face and boiled egg upon his shirt and all his nails full of dirt. On Tuesday, still in Monday's socks, he started smelling like a fox. On Wednesday, any friends he had would not sit near the little lad. He smelt so bad, the teacher chose to wear a peg upon her nose. In fact, so dirty had he got, his vest and socks began to rot. By Thursday, there was still no hope of getting Georgie near the soap. With dirty ears and nose and eyes, he started to attract the flies. He got sent home from school as well, for nobody could stand the smell. When he walked in, the flowers died. His mother made him go outside. You're not coming down this path, she said, until you've had a bath. I don't care, said Georgie Grubb. You won't get me inside that tub. With pockets full as rubbish bins, as slimy as banana skins, he disappeared that very day to find another place to stay. Friday came and Friday went with all his pocket money spent. Nowhere to go, nothing to eat. Oh, poor Georgie's aching feet. And as no one would let him in, he crawled inside a rubbish bin. In with rotten cabbage stumps and slimy stew and porridge lumps, gristle, bones, half-eaten chips, apple cores and custard drips, little Georgie went to sleep, quite buried in the rubbish heap. There's really not much more to say. The bin men came on Saturday. I don't know if you already knew that poem. It was one of our boys' favourites when they were young. 
But if you do, then you know exactly Paul's theology from Romans chapter 1. Now let's have a little recap. We've said so far that this book is Paul's manifesto, this letter, his manifesto for his preaching of the gospel. And it's being sent to Rome because he's looking for a new HQ for his mission westwards towards Spain. And we said that his gospel begins with the God of righteousness, not the God of love. We'd be tempted to begin with, but the God of righteousness, the God for whom it is impossible to do anything wrong or unjust. And that God, we said, is revealing his wrath. And we said that raises two questions. Why does God get angry? And how does God get angry? And we said the answer to the first question, he gets angry at godlessness. Those who live lives as though there is either no God at all or a completely powerless God. Those who refuse both to acknowledge him for who he is and to thank him for what he has made and provided for them. And we said that that godlessness usually leads on then to wickedness because if you take God out of the equation, you begin to live as though nothing matters and you don't care. And people living in ways which mistreat or harm what God has made, whether that's the created world or other people, is what Paul means by wickedness here. Even by looking at the created world, people ought to recognise that behind it is someone who deserves thanks and respect. But instead they spoil that created world, they harm its people, and then, because we all need to worship something, they begin to create their own idols to worship. Now that's what we said last week about why God is angry, but I want to look this week at how is he angry. And if I'm angry with someone, they can tell by what I do, by what I say, by the, the way I look, my body language, whatever. So, so how do we know that God is angry? How is his wrath revealed? In that poem, Georgie Grubb's mum is desperately trying to get him to clean up his life and he just won't have it. And the pivot line in that poem is this, she threw the towel in and gave up and let him be a mucky pup. And according to Paul, that's exactly what God has done. He shows his anger by giving up on us. And people give up on God, and so God not gives up, but gives over people. Three times in those verses, Paul said, says God gave them over to this, that or the other. He threw the towel in and gave up and let us be mucky pups. And just as the rest of that poem is an ever-worsening account of Georgie's filthy life, 
So Romans one twenty four to 32 is an account of the human race once God has left them to it. And there's that poignant final line of the poem, The Bin Men Came on Saturday. And that points to the ultimate destiny of those who give up on God. Here's another picture. If I park my car on a hill, it needs the handbrake on. If I take the handbrake off, I don't need to push it downhill. It just naturally goes and some kind of car crash is inevitable at the bottom. And Romans 1 is about the human race when God takes the handbrake off, gives us over and lets us get on with it. And various things happen, according to Paul, in that downhill drift to destruction. The first is this, there is no restraint on fallen human appetites. One of the strongest of those is sex, and Paul talks about that first, although he doesn't end there. Strong desires put into us by God are to be expressed within boundaries, like, in fact, all the desires God puts into us. I can remember a famous Christian leader, and I can't remember who it was, and maybe that's as well, um, But I remember him saying that by nature he would be a serial adulterer. There are so many women that he fancied. But God has put his spirit in him to curb what he might otherwise naturally do. I would also be a serial speeder. I've got a really great car. It goes like a bomb. Um, I watched a YouTube video the other day of a car like mine doing 154 miles an hour and uh, I I would do that if left to myself but there are two things that stop me and keep me to 70. One is a morbid fear of blue flashing lights. The other is that I did an Institute of Advanced Motoring course and realised how silly and dangerous it is. So I actually don't want to do it. Uh, And that's like the law and the spirit. I'm frightened of breaking the law and the punishment that that will bring. But also something inside me has helped me to realise through that advanced driving course that it just isn't a good idea to drive at 154 miles an hour unless you're on a German autobahn. And all of us have got all sorts of things that it might be, quotes, natural for us to do, whether it's adultery or speeding or or whatever. When God gets angry and takes the handbrake off, and we can just go ahead and do them. And also, it's expected we will. I don't know whether uh, you share my guilty pleasure of watching Casualty on a Saturday night, but there was a fascinating episode recently when nobody could believe that it was possible to have the wrong kinds of urges 
and yet realise that they're wrong and choose not to act on them. We give up on God, we lose fear of him and respect for him and he says, okay, just get on with it. And verses 28 to 31 gives us a catalogue of what people would like to do if there was nothing there to stop them. And it really is a list of pretty much every kind of wickedness you can think of. Envy, murder, strife, gossip, slander, insolence, arrogance, boasting. So the list goes on. It's not a pretty sight. It's a world in which people have no love and no mercy. And it's almost as though evil is like a a kind of addictive drug. You just might try it once for a laugh, but before you know it, you're hooked. And you need to shoot up ever stronger and ever more frequent doses. Now remember what we said, because all this stuff looks like it is what God would be angry with. But no, we've done that bit. This is what God getting angry looks like. This is what the world looks like when God throws the towel in and gives up. When he takes the handbrake off the car and everyone is free to do just what they want to do without any restraint. And then you get that that final verse, perhaps the worst bit of all, the true climax to this tale of horrors. Not only do we keep living like this, but we approve and encourage others to do the same. We're not just recreational sin users, we become pushers trying to get others as hooked as we are. And although this letter was written nearly 2,000 years ago, it reads as up-to-date as today's newspaper. This is the world we're living in. And in many ways, it's a very similar world to the middle period of the Roman Empire. And we all know what happened to them. In fact, anthropologists have said that there is no civilization on earth which has ever survived for very long at all once stable family life has broken down and once sexual identity has become confused. History teaches us that over and over. And it happened to the Roman Empire and many people believe it's what ha- is happening to the Western world today. So what's the solution to all this? That's what Paul is going to get to eventually, but he's got a few more hard things to say first, and we'll go on to explore those. But I do want to end on uh, a little excursus, because I've tiptoed a little bit around the whole issue of sexuality and Paul seems to be saying here that the first manifestation of God's anger is same-sex relationships. (coughs) Excuse me, and that has led 
some of those with an axe to grind in that particular direction to write off the whole section or indeed the whole of Paul or, or the whole of the Bible because it appears critical of their lifestyle. So in an age when LGBTIQA+, and whatever the latest uh, additional letters are, when that agenda is flavour of the month, and when you can't possibly say anything which doesn't wholeheartedly affirm that agenda, or else you're in, accused of homophobia and bigotry and all the rest of it, Romans 1 seems an absolutely direct head-on attack to that agenda. So, so what are we to do about that? And I think that, that fundamentally people have taken one of three positions on this. And I think it is just worth opening this up and uh, having a look of it. I, I think there are three possible positions two of which I think have some validity and one which doesn't have any validity. The first position is that we basically believe the Bible, we take it at face value and we adopt the traditional view that the Bible roundly condemns same-sex practice in all its forms. That, that doesn't mean that God hates the sinner but he does hate the sin. That's how uh, it's often expressed in that kind of language. And so Christians hopefully try to be as welcoming as they can towards same-sex attracted people, but at the same time doesn't condone living out that kind of lifestyle, sees it as completely contrary to scripture. That's the first position. And that's the kind of line that most evangelical conservative Christians would take. The second position is that we try to reinterpret scripture. And there's a kind, you can get books which try and do this. There's a list of kind of dangerous texts which appear to be anti-gay. And so people go back into the original Hebrew and what have you and say, oh, of course, it doesn't really mean that. Um, and since David and Jonathan were gay lovers, um, that's obviously OK for scripture. You know, that that kind of stuff, There's a lot of attempt to do that. The third position is to say... I, I do believe that scripture teaches that. I just disagree with scripture. Uh, it's out of date. It was written in a different age. We do, after all, feel free to ignore other bits like eating prawns and wearing polycotton shirts and what have you, slavery, stuff like that. Um, so, so now we are more intelligent than they were. And we know it's okay, really. And the Bible is kind of historical curiosity in its rather quaint, outdated views. Uh, but we are completely free to ignore it. I think that's a fair summary of those three positions. You either take the Bible at face value, you 
do lots of work to try and say, oh, well, it doesn't really mean that. Or you say, well, yes, it does really mean that, but I think that's out of date and, uh, and we need to move on. For myself, just in case you might be wondering, I think positions one and three have some integrity. As an amateur biblical scholar, I can't actually believe two does. Uh, there, there are rules about how we interpret scripture. We have to read it against its background, apply its principles uh, and what have you. And as far as I can see, all the attempts that have been made to re-exegete those dangerous passages to make them say that a gay lifestyle is perfectly fine um, have no integrity to them whatsoever. I, I think it's inconceivable when you read the Bible as a whole and, and against its background um, to say that it, it does approve uh, same-sex active relationships. Um, I don't think we can wriggle out of those texts, so therefore we've either got to believe them and accept them, or we've got to say, uh, I, I think the Bible is wrong. And I think both those positions do have uh, an integrity to them that the middle one doesn't. So there we are, just saying. Anyway, enough of that. Next week, Paul has got something to say to those who look on at others and moan about how evil they are. So we'll see what he's got to say next time.